Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show, comedy on Power Talk. Thank you so much for making us part of your day today, wherever you are in this great world. And what a high honor it is to bring in somebody who came up at a time in our cultural history when there were numerous opportunities to play live on the bandstand not only that, there was a live touring circuit, and many of the masters of this music or people that learned from the masters were still not only alive, but completely accessible to younger generations of cats who were looking to find their own individual sound. And, you know, quite honestly, it's different today um, because of the intrusion of media, uh, because of sort of the, the celebrity-centric society that we have a lot of people, a lot of amazing people who can heal regular cats who go and see them. I don't want to say they've been marginalized, but their significance has been changed by the um, the superstar, the, the the big star. And if you know anything, and I've you know I've done two thousand radio interviews with my elders and my peers, but what you recognize is that cats like Dizzy and Miles. And Freddie Hubbard, none of them were perfect, but they all wanted to share the information with younger cats to pass on this beautiful language of modern American, black American music, jazz. And there was no hoarding and there was, uh, well, there was no greed factor. Uh, There's a lot of issues today, uh, economically, sociologically, culturally. And I got a chance today to speak to somebody who was lucky enough to be marinating in this amazing sea of uh, melodic enlightenment. He found his own voice, and uh, I was humbled enough to be down in the West Village in New York a long time ago at a flea market, and this cat used to sell DVDs and VHS tapes of really rare live concerts, all different genres of music, and one of the first guys that got me into jazz was Freddie Hubbard, and I picked up this DVD of Freddie from Montreux, and my guests playing absolutely, I mean, I had discarga. I had a spiritual release watching this guy play. It was out of body. Uh, he was. He knows that he's merely a conduit for the music coming through him from the heavens. Billy Childs, welcome to the Jake Feinberg Show. Glad to be here, and pretty much the interview's over. <laughs> you can't, you can't no, yeah, no, no. Well, you know, man, it's it's. It, I mean, can you? For me, it's a fantasy, Billy. I mean, I I was born in seventy. I was born in seventy eight, the year that 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 show that you played with Hadley and Freddie and Carl and Larry. Mm-hmm. And I, is it is it as is my fantasy? Does it meet the reality of that time? Because I also know that plenty of geniuses died broke. Um, there was a lot of issues. But just from your point of view, was it as magical as I think it was? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I'd have to, I have to say it's pretty accurate what you said, you know, about um, the, you know, the, 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 the clubs, the places you could play. The, the the main thing that you said, which resonates, is that, you know, there was this mentor-apprentice relationship between, uh, you know, masters of the music and students of the music, where you kind of learned on the street. You know, you learned um, 
by playing gigs, you know. Um, I would add that also there was much more variety in terms of like the the, the record labels, you know. Absolutely. Um, the 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 the, uh, the possibility of getting a record deal or putting out a record yourself. Putting out a record yourself back then meant a different thing than putting out a record yourself now, um, because. You know, now everybody could put out a record, and it's uh, and it's available on every medium, and everything kind of cancels everything out. It kind of di- <laughs> right. the, the scene is just so diluted right. that since if everything's available, then nothing. You know, it's harder for um, anything to stand out. Yeah, but, we're saturated you know, with material. So what did it lo- what did it look like yeah. back then? What did it look like if you put? If well, back you, then, you know, like I I put out. The way I got my first record deal was that I put out a record myself. I just, I was a very, I've always been a very proactive person, you know. If I had a vision in my head, I wanted to realize it. I wanted to see what it sounded like, no matter how big the orchestration. So I put out a record of 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 various songs, like side A, where were like you know more. Uh, typical like jazz things, although they were like highly composed and stuff. But side B were two kind of like big epic pieces, uh, Lunacy and The Coming of Spring. One was like 10 min- 11 minutes, the other one was like 13 minutes, and they were both through composed, no, no improvisation. And coming from like a fusion, progressive rock, classical, jazz, you know, like kind of a amalgam of a a bunch of different styles but i put this out um and and on side a there was everything from like like a progressive fusiony sounding song to a straight ahead jazz thing to a there was one song called friends of love that was like really kind of almost like a smooth jazz like (laughs) a pop pop sounding thing And, and so for the jazz things i would go to kbca um, radio station here in LA that would play that only played jazz and for the pop stuff I, I went to I, I I would bring the album around after I manufactured that I'd bring the album around to these radio stations like KH or KJLH you know they played like R&B stuff and you know it was uh, so what I'm saying is that um, there, there was more kind of a system in place that that major album uh, available. I don't know how to put it. Like no, I want. I want. I'm going to help. I'm going to help you out. I want to. I want to be clear. First of all, what year was this? Because uh, this was in the 70s. Um, no, like the 80s, like the mid 80s. So you, I mean, you could 80s. take that record. Theoretically, I've I've talked to other cats that had these sort of, you know, where you could get the record and then take it to radio stations and actually get regional airplay. You know, that to me, that, that is unhurt. That to me is magic. I mean, that is the magic. Yeah. And, and and even, you know, you you actually would just, you you actually would just walk into the, you know, like make an appointment or call or just walk in and here's my record, you know, (laughs) Uh, can you play it? Right. And if they heard of you and like, you know, of course you'd have to have a reputation of, that was of, of some 
you know, merit, you know, and I had played with Freddie Hubbard at that point and people knew who I was. So they say, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, I'll, I'll play it. And, and they would, you'd hear it on the radio, you know? So that to me is, and, and so at that point then, you know, because there's so many, um, we are diluted. We are saturated with information today. A lot of it mm-hmm. is very mediocre too. Um, and yeah. so you, it's hard to discern what is really good from what is, or what is authentic or burning or whatever it is. Um, yeah. so, I mean, there you had a record CDs were in its infancy really. Uh, and so you had records that get played at the station. And then if people were into that, you know, if they listened to that station, then they could go to the tower records or, and they could buy the record. I mean, that's, I mean, it's yeah, kind of, yeah. right. I mean, it, it kind of, pl- yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and plus, plus you you know you would make the record, you put your own packaging on it, you would, you know, it was a record format, you know. But now, you know, it seemed to have like kind of a more personal uh, thing to it. Whereas now, if you put some music together, you just put it on Bandcamp or something like that, or have a file that's an MP3 file. It's very impersonal. Well, and know? also it's like they put it on Bandcamp because that. That's because that's how the musicians get the biggest cut of money. I mean, it's really become quite what? like. Uh, I just have to read you this before I forget because I, I was looking through my my other interviews and this is my interview with Paul Jackson. Bless him, man. He said, "I have some music with Vince Denham, Mike Clark, and Billy Childs, unreleased stuff right. that I want to get out." What is he talking about? I, I have. What? When did well, you? When did you play with those cats? Actually, one of those tunes uh, we um, I did I re- did a remake of it on my latest album, Acceptance, and I called the tune Lamert Park. But oh, I um, love it! I love back it. Back then, yeah, yeah back then, um, and it was a co- it was co-written by me, Paul Jackson, and Mike Clark, um, uh, and and uh, I, you know, they had asked me to do. A an album with them like Return of the Headhunters. You know they were putting together this Headhunters group uh, without Herbie Hancock, and they wanted. You know they called me. I think Patrice did um, a couple of tracks, and and um, so. But Mike Clark and Paul and I had a really good vibe together, so we decided to just um, get together and record on our own. You know, and so we we got together and jammed and 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 came up with some stuff and uh, and I don't know who knew Vince Denham, but uh, he was one of their friends and so he he um, he the four of us got in, went into the studio and recorded like three or four things. You know, uh, some of it's real like. It's it's like uh, it's probably pretty raw and burning, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty raw. Yeah. Um, my favorite of of the tracks is the one that I read made on on uh, my album. Back then, we just called it marimba because I, I put a I there's this piano figure this this pattern that's in five eight, and I play it on a marimba sound. Wow! Uh, so, and we 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 didn't have a title for it, so we just called it marimba. <laughs> um, but yeah, I really, I no, really, no, you, um, this, I want to, you know, cause no denim, this is so cool because, um, uh, you know, you were in a different portal of your life. You were 
younger, but I mean, they were in Oakland in the in the in the late '60s, early '70s, pre Headhunters, um, really making up funk grooves. I mean, Paul would be playing all sorts of outlandish stuff. Mike would lock in, and they'd be playing for hours. You know, those guys were. Right. Did you did you get a chance? I guess the best question. I mean, did you ever play the Chitlin Circuit? I mean, Klein and you obviously cooked the groove at the comeback, and you know, you were in the art school, USC schools together. What would you say? Mm-hmm. Like, what was the first kind of road gig that Billy Childs had? Well, I wouldn't. I, I guess I did. I was in this group called Phase Seven, which wow. was like a, um, which was a kind of a uh, a top forty band. Basically, we just played uh, stuff, the, the top forty hits of the day. Like we played uh, Boss Gags, like the Dirty Lowdown. I remember we played. I love um, this, dude. What's the name of the band? Uh, what was it called? Co- uh, it was called Phase Seven. Phase guess Seven. What? Were, yeah, because guess what? There were seven of them. <laughs> uh, and and uh, yeah, we played like you know clubs around, like dance clubs. You know, we would play, and they would be hard gigs. You know, we play like five five set um, nights from nine to two. Uh, so and with a fifteen minute break, you know, each hour. You know, so and people and our purpose was to get people to dance. So, yeah, we played. I played that, you know, and I kind of enjoyed all I could stand of that, you know, and and started. um, And that was around the time that I started playing like kind of higher profile jazz gigs. But but Larry Klein and I met, you know, I I know you did an interview with him and he had um, talked about us meeting we met at the community schools which is now the colburn school sure um and uh we yeah we, we you know he was eddie gomez and i was bill evans <laughs> you know? we just kind of like, yeah i love played, it dude we I played lo- for hours and days you know um <sighs> in each other's you know i would stay over at his pad you know and then we just played for like three days in a row just straight you know, like all day. And then, you know, he'd stay over my pad and then we'd play, you know, in my, I had a piano, a little, a baby grand piano. So yeah, we, we did that, but I, the first real jazz gig I did, cause I did a few like local jazz gigs at Dante's and come back in and places like that. But, um, the first, like major one was with JJ Johnson. And that was because, um, I knew his son, uh, Kevin Johnson, who, you know, JJ wanted to take a young band to Japan in 1977. And, and, uh, so Kevin, you know, Kevin and I were friends and I had no idea his father was JJ Johnson. And he said, you know, my dad wants to, uh, uh, put a band together you know, want to go to Japan? And I said, sure. And I go to his house and J.J. Johnson opens the door. And so I was like freaking out. That was my first uh, real jazz gig. And then right after that, Larry got me on the gig with Freddie Hubbard. I'm just looking at this concert. I mean, it's uh, one of the cats that I have, I mean, one of the greatest dudes ever, Tony Dumas. Did you grow up with Dumas too? 
Yeah, kind of. You know, I met Dumas early in my career, but I didn't. I didn't grow up with. I. I mean, we grew up from the age twenty onward, but you know, not in the teens. Sure. Um, I. I. Um, <clears throat> I met Tony Dumas at the comeback in. He was playing with somebody. He was playing with this guy. His name was Oscar Brown. His name, I think, was Oscar Brown Jr. Also, but he was a piano player. Different cat you than know, the different cat than yeah. the, the poet. Yeah. Yeah. Right. The singer. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Or maybe he wasn't Jr. But his name was Oscar Brown, and Tony was playing with him. And I was like, this guy is amazing. But I had heard him on. Patrice's album, Prelusion. Oh, my. That's my favorite freaking album, dude, ever, man. That is filthy. I wish you... That that album kind of changed... You know, I mean, like, what can you say to... to, in In this interview that... To younger cats who will hear this and then well after we've left this planet, I mean, what is it... What was the muse, the essence of... The Nat Adderleys, the J.J. Johnsons, the Freddie Hubbards. What made them beyond their just beyond genius ability to like just take it into the ozone? Um, what was it about their leadership style that made them transcendent figures? That I want to believe that history is cyclical. You look at a lot of history; it does appear cyclical, but you know. I also look at these guys and I'm like, my God, I mean, I, I just want to have cats like that come back around at some point, maybe after we're gone. And I'm just trying to, you, you touched, you, you were able to, to cook with them so much, you know, enough to, yeah. so talk well, about them. Well, well, what I wanted to, well, I just wanted to finish the thought about Tony Dumas, Please. which was um, th- that uh, I, uh, we, I met him you know, uh, at the comeback in and he was playing, he was, and I had heard of him from prelusion. Um, but, um, when JJ put this, wanted this band put together, I immediately thought of Tony. And so I suggested Tony do this tour with us in Japan also. And that's when I really started connecting with him. I was like 20 and, uh, Tony was 21. And so ever since then, we, you know, I, he was like the person. I would play a lot of local gigs with him, and then many years later, um, uh, he he would play on my first uh, Wyndham Hill albums, uh, and and he was just like my favorite upright bass player. But in terms of your other thing about what made Freddie and. Um, I think you're asking what made their genius. You know what it is. What? What? I mean, it's it's like master. Like the the word master. I use it. I don't necessarily mean uh, clearly a master of the um, of the instrument is key or mastery of the music, but it's not an intellectual exercise. It's about burning and it's about like unpredictability and it's about spontaneity. And to me, it's like all the co- the parts of the multidimensional self. That's the magic of music. And whether it was because there were antiquated PA systems, not everybody was mic'd, the fact that you could play six or seven nights a week. I mean, they never played the same song the same way once. And my generation's all yeah. hung up on perfection. I don't think those those guys would have laughed at perfection. You know, I mean, they, they were perfect just the way they were, but I'm still trying to gather that essence because... It was just a different, 
these are different cats. Well, I think a, a lot of factors play into it. You know, I mean, there are a lot of, you know, there, there's good with every change and bad with every change. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, humans have evolved to um, to the point that they are now, and and you know, um, I would. I would say I'm trying not to do a value judgment on things just based off of like what I grew up with and what my preferences are for, for the generation. But I do prefer, I, I, I am happy with how I was brought up in the music. I think there's, I think jazz has moved away from the streets and has moved into the institutions, you know, the way jazz is taught now is kind of is like in a kind of a lab kind of scenario rather than a mentor apprentice uh, a paradigm. Absolutely. You know? so, so so um, people are taught. I was just talking to Diane Reeves about this this morning, you know, because uh, uh, we were talking about doing NASA classes and and one thing is like. The way that people get really good in jazz nowadays is by going to universities, which are ridiculously expensive. Insane. You know, and 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 um, so there's an era of, of there's an era of privilege there also um, uh, that you know uh, you know is 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 present, but but people go there and then. They're told what there's kind of like a way that you're supposed to think about jazz. They're supposed to learn jazz, or there's a there's a right way and a wrong way, you know. Um, so people are playing jazz the right way, you know, as opposed <laughs> to the wrong way, and 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 uh, they're, they're they're sounding the same because they're all playing the right way because they're directed into this way of of playing jazz, whereas you know. You kind of like so when I used to listen. When I used to like try to learn something, like if I wanted to learn a Herbie Hancock solo, right, or a right. Chick Corea solo, right. and I would get it off of the record. <laughs> sometimes I get get it wrong. You know, I'd get like a lick wrong. But then what happens is, when you get it wrong, it turns into your thing. Oh, I love it. Oh, you nailed like, it. You nailed it. Then it, it, it turns into like what your language is, and so. Um, so there's, I think that also like they're learning by looking at videos on YouTube of other people and there's a sense now of like, just give me the information, uh, just tell me how it goes, you know, and then I'll, and then I'll, I'll get the information and I'll know how to play it, you know, rather than, you know, like the veil is taken off of how of the process of arriving at a certain place the veil is it's just like this is what you have to do to learn how to play whereas you know when i was coming up you know you didn't have a lot of you couldn't just go up to herbie hancock's house and say how'd you do that you had to listen to the record (laughs) and then decide for yourself and so there was like an air of mystery to it also. There was like, oh my because, God. So great. because so great. there was, because there was like, um, it, it wasn't, 
exposed as just, it wasn't reduced to just like modes and scales and 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 theories and stuff like that. It was like this kind of because you had very little clues and very little technology telling you what it was. You, you kind of it was it was a mysterious, and so it, it also had another dimension, you know like a, 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 a kind of a spiritual dimension also. Like exactly. No, musicians, do, I, like these, these, these musicians that were li- linking up and connecting, you felt as though they were like doing it by some divine <laughs> way, by, by, by something ra- ra- rather than, you know, worked out or something, you know, so. Well, no, this is important because you're nailing it, of course, but it's like, you know, Back then, uh, there were maybe North Texas and Berkeley had jazz curriculums, but uh, you know there were mm-hmm. there were lab bands. Billy Harper was in a lab band, but those cats were gigging in Denton every six nights, a, six days a week. I mean, they were on the bandstand. I mean, when you were coming up, do you, was it sort of like it was? It was the idea was if you're going to play jazz, jazz was a live music. Like, hopefully you could tap, yeah. you tap your foot to it. But it wasn't something you right. played in isolation. You weren't just wank. I mean, yeah, you and Larry were cooking because you were just making stuff up um, and having a ball doing it. But the ultimate, wasn't jazz a live? I mean, at one time it was dance music. But to me, it was a street scholar approach to a non-codify. When you codify something then you just it becomes an assembly line and you have people coming out sounding like they're professors and and you know that yeah. you know there there is this basically you would say that um that you were completely a street scholar outside of the 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 school the arts the USC schools you went to um you learned on the bandstand well yeah that's true actually i when i Got out of high school. I applied to go to college and three and got accepted in three different places. I got accepted in USC at Berkeley and also at New England Conservatory. But at Berkeley and New England Conservatory, um, I was accepted as a jazz composition and jazz performance major. And and um, at USC, I was accepted as a composition major. And I figured that. I wanted to know more about European classical music, you know, and the structures of, because I, I was also very interested in composing and uh, I did well in theory. And so I wanted, I, I and I love, you know, composers like Hindemith, Prokofiev, Ravel, you know, I love all that stuff. So I wanted to study that, you know, and I figured I would learn jazz um, just by playing it. Right. You know, right. which is, which was my mentality, and which was most people's mentality about jazz. It was like if the USC did, really didn't have a jazz band, you know. It, it, it had, as a matter of fact, you know, as a composer, um, a, a composition major at USC, you had to have like some credits from having played in an ensemble, but they didn't have that applicable to a jazz ensemble so i had to so when i i played in the jazz ensemble which was terrible you know this jazz ensemble um but i played in there for the credits and and i kind of petitioned to get 
credits, you know, for ensemble credits, and they, they granted me that. But, I mean, the jazz ensemble at Berkeley, like, the bassoonist would pick up the electric bass, and they'd be the bass player in the band, you know, and, and uh, these people who are used to playing, like, you know, Haydn's trumpet concerto were, like, in the, you know, the trumpet chair, you know. And so it was, it was um, a, not a very good jazz band, but that was okay because I was playing gigs all over L.A. with, like, actually really good jazz. Exactly. Band, you know? No, I mean, I wanna, this is also yeah. important. I want to go back to what you said before about um, finding your own individual sound or rather putting on a record like a Chick Corea or Herbie record and then kind of, like, either flubbing a note or, or doing your own, but that created who you were. And, you know, this is, this is my interview with um, the late great Alan Toussaint. He said, even the tuning of the instrument has changed music. You need a meter to get things done. When before you used to read your heart, some of the stuff that you found out in the tuning is what made you, you. After a while, we began to look at a needle. I'm not saying it would be good to play out of tune, but out of tune isn't always out of tune. Once you begin to operate on this very thin straight line and quote, now we're ready to go, you're ready to go because that meter dictated you're ready to go. It is correct that it is totally in tune, but if you're not careful, your life of music can become that way. And what he's really talking about is homogenization of sound. And, 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 uh, well, he's also, he's also talking about putting limits on things like, you know, pretty, creating a box which you can't go exactly. out of. There was no box you know? for Billy. I mean, was what, what, there were no parameters other than, I don't know. I mean, it, to me, it was, it, that's what jazz is. It's, it's freedom. It's, it, and, and, and if you're going to be put in a, if you're going to, if you think that all the technology in the world is going to, um, you know, help you find liberation or your own individual sound. I don't think so. I mean, I I think that everybody, you know, you and Larry are kind of like that tail end generation that caught that that vibe of being able to yeah. find your own sound. And I, I just wonder if you can point to things. I mean, obviously now is kind of an unprecedented time, but you know what would be your advice to younger cats? Because like you said, this is like a major money-making industry now. I remember Indugu told me, rest in peace, he said, you know, all these cats that come to USC where he was teaching, they, um, a lot of international students, very talented, a lot of them are coming on, on, uh, on scholarship, and they wind up playing with themselves in the school. He goes, I just wish they'd go out and find the cats with the rubber bands around their horns and play the blues a little bit. I, I was curious about how you, if the blues was something that was naturally ingrained in you, I don't believe per se that you have to be coming from the, the, the cotton fields or you don't have to necessarily have a downtrodden life. Miles lived a good life and he could play the blues. How did you learn to feel the blues, because that's the jazz I love the most. It's right alongside the blues. And today I hear a classicalized formula trip in jazz. So how did you learn to authentically play the blues? Well, I mean, I don't know. All I know is that I, I, I love 
playing, you know, authentic music. And and uh, the blues is such a it's interwoven to the American, you know, experiment. I mean, blues is part of America. Blues is America. Mm-hmm. I don't see how you cannot play the blues. I, I don't. I don't see how you can avoid it in in whatever form. Uh, I, I I mean I I think that um, the 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 um, the blue the blues yeah the blues is it's just an essential. I had a thought I was going to. It'll say come back. No, because you know what I want to say is Cannonball, Sonny Train, Two Saint. Earl mm-hmm. Palmer, those guys were all honking and walking the bar, playing R and B, very unsophisticated, playing the blues before they started to play more heady intellectual bebop music, which which to me was perfect. But they had the blues in their system. And uh, I know what I was yeah. going to say. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so so I mean I think that um, the blues represents. I mean, it represents like kind of the African. Uh, train of thought in jazz, you know, it's it's like it has to do with it has to do with like painting a picture of of Af- of the African American experience, exactly. which which goes to to uh, back to Africa. Also, I mean, I think when you're talking about the groove and you're talking about the swing. You're talking about making the music kind of a dance-like thing, which to me is an African thing. You know, it, it, it making it making it connect more with your body. You know, exactly making it, making making it have to do with the rhythms of your body, how your body moves, um, and which which ties more into your emotions. I think, you know, but but um, you know, kind of a more Eurocentric ap- approach is like making it almost like a chamber music or making it making it very like the the I think with a this may sound racial and, and of course this this isn't meant to no to to um uh, stereotype or you know whatever but you know when when it's it's kind of like a a, a dance a, a, the, the the dance form thing has more of an African type of um, uh, a vibe to it, whereas like the intel, intellectualization, the, the 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 Eurocentric part that that you know the rhythmic complexity has more to do in this more African ethos with making the music have to do with your body and making it feel make your body move and and uh making it feel like you know the rhythms that way whereas um musical like rhythmic complexity coming from kind of a eurocentric standpoint has to do with like making it very complex and making it like um asymmetrical absolutely and and, and kind of over the bar line very heady you know um, yeah that's 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 the that's the um the 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 goal and the 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 thing that a eurocentric ethos kind of aspires to is like this complex concept of rhythm like kind of like the rite of spring is you know where you're going you're shifting meters all over the place and and you have metric modulations, and, and you have like one 
one um, rhythm juxtaposed against another one, you know. You know, no, and, I was gonna, and, I mean, this goes yeah. back to, I mean, this goes back to Congo Square and, and the distrust and the mistrust of the drum. I mean, they would cut the slaves' hands off if they were caught with a drum. There's always been a right. mistrust of rhythm, the need that it would allow, it would let the body dance, it would create descarga, spiritual discharge. I mean, this goes way back, but I mean, you go to, yeah. you know, I mean, I had these talks with Carl Burnett, you know, I mean, you... You look at any jazz album, you know, obviously the labels contracted big time in 1980. I think the top six record companies bought all 300 independent record labels, which was a major issue. But the thing is, if you look at any credible melodic improvisational jazz album in the 70s, there was always ethnic percussion on it. You might have African drums. You might have, you know... uh, all types of different, you know, world percussion. Percussion was always parts of albums. And then after a while, it just became very formula trip, very like quartet, brass. Uh, I don't, the, the, the undulating rhythms of jazz, the African component, the African rhythms of jazz were pulsating when you were coming up. And it's, it, for a lot of reasons, a lot of its mechanization and technology, we've gone away from that, you know, and that to me is, um, well, I mean, it, you know, it's, it, it doesn't, it, there's no feeling in it. If it's all heady stuff, if it's all intellectual stuff, dude, I'd wind up staring at the wall. I mean, I'd rather, mm-hmm. I'll hear a blues any day of the week. I mean, th- I mean, that concert, man, that I saw you playing, I could not believe the per, how percussive you were playing on the piano and the melodies coming out of it as well. It was like, I guess that's the question for you, Billy, is like so many cats I've talked, I've done quite a few interviews, a lot of studio cats, guys that wound up making careers in the studios. And a lot of them, when I talk to some of them, they say there's, there's, there are some that as they get older, um, they become a little bit bitter and resentful because the phone has stopped ringing and they're not as much in demand. And the reason they're bitter is because they took, they believe that they were fully responsible for cre- for whatever came out of their apparatus or singing the, the hit song that they did it themselves, they themselves, when in fact they were merely a conduit for the music coming through them from the heavens. And when I watched you guys played that concert, I saw you as a conduit for the music coming through you, that you were only partially responsible for it and that there was something much higher that was, that was flowing through you. And I wanted you to talk about kind of maybe the first time or one an early experience in your career when you recognized that the Socratic method, that you had to know what you didn't know, that there was a magic to music when you got out of your own way. Well, yeah. Uh, definitely. But I want to um, interject here yeah. that, um, uh, you know, this is, music is also generational. I mean, you know, what, what I don't want to sound like I'm slamming jazz musicians nowadays, you know, because the thing about it is um, the, 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 each generation, we're all humans, basically. I mean, 
there, if it weren't for the, you know, the, the online and the way we live our lives, you know, there would be just as, I mean, there, there probably are as many Miles Davises and Keith Jarrett's and, and uh, Louis Armstrong's and, you know, that there were, Igor Stravinsky says there were back in those days, you know, the, the thing about it is what, what the internet and social media and and uh, the music business and Spotify and all these people are are changing our whole way of having to produce music and consume music, you know, and the way we learn music has been changed. Like uh, the jazz education has turned into this big corporate monster, Absolutely. you know, that is kind of like that is kind of like self-perpetuating and feeding on itself to, um, and is um, to the point where um, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it seems like the only way that, you know, jazz can be perpetuated now that, that jazz can, you know, pass on from one generation to the other. I mean, I, I teach at Berkeley, which is, fantastic i love i love that school and i love teaching there the students are incredible but it's you know that's that's one way you know of of passing on the legacy the the way i the way i got the legacy passed on was another way like with a, a master like freddie hubbard joe henderson mm. you know bobby hutcherson um the, uh, teaching me but all this to say that the students the, 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 the young people wanting to, first of all, you have to have like kind of an iron will to even want to learn to play jazz in this day and age. Um, and uh, so hats off to people who are just even wanting to learn it. And secondly, they're just as brilliant as the generations before them and as the generations that will be after them. The thing is, the way they are saddled with having to learn it now, which is not their fault, you know, um, is, and actually might be an advantage, you know, who knows? Um, but the way they have to learn it is a totally different way now, you know? So the, the other thing about them is that students nowadays have the, have much more history to absorb about jazz than I did. When I came up, they have like, you know, 40 more years of like the fusion era, the Pat Metheny, you know, the young lions. Absolutely. Totally, dude. Soup to nuts. And and all of this, uh, all of this kind of stuff they have to learn now. So it's, I want to make it very clear that I am not, you know, want wanting to disparage young people who, who are, are trying to learn jazz because it's you know we we need it to uh to keep going i just wish like you do that things could you know things could be kind of passed down you know the emphasis i wish the internet weren't so pervasive in the music well i also this is the other thing i want yeah i mean when you say corporate what that means is um is is just make it stock, make it very safe, make it appealing to the masses, which is not the jazz life. It's not about individual sound. I mean, 
I know when I interviewed Phil Ranlin, I'm sure you remember the story, but it just speaks to how elastic everything was. The idea that at Royce Hall, uh, the promoter came out, came to you and said, Freddie's running late. He wants you to start as a band. And, and, and no, but what I'm saying, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, (laughs) so, so Ram feels like you sure you, that Freddie said that. And he's like, yeah. And so they, you guys went out there and I'm sorry, you went out there as a band without Freddie and started to play. And then Freddie shows up, walks down into the concert hall up on the stage. Phil's like, Oh my God, he's going to kill me in front of all these people. And, you know, he's like yelling at him. And then he wound up, he was like yelling. You guys were going down the stairs. It was Tootie, you, uh, Phil and Freddie. And he's just berating Randlin. and Phil's like, why don't you just punch me, man? Just punch me. And he was just so, I mean, the point is that into everything is so, everything is so expected. There's no, to me, the spontaneity of playing with those guys, they had the ability to create, you know, if you're just into the music, then you're just a craftsman. I mean, the whole idea of sound and art and the creation of a whole thing that comes from the vibe of everything. That's what the art's all about. And Joe Henderson his nickname was the Phantom. He could play the most burning show in the world, and he was back on the I five, going back to San Francisco. He's playing at the Lighthouse. Everyone's like, "Where's George? Uh, where's Joe? Oh, he's gone." I mean, these guys yeah. did not operate on TikTok time. They were not controlled by corporate interests to say you're going to play this amount of time, forty five minutes set. You're going to have dinner, then this. Everything is so premeditated, and jazz is a, such a spontaneous music. And again, like you said. These cats today not only have to learn everything, then they somehow have to find themselves too. That seems like too big a challenge. I mean, because it's, the, you know it's it's intense. It was really hard, um, and also you're dealing with a market that may not be interested Absolutely. in yourself. Absolutely, is. I think that was you one know? of the yeah. The, 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 how exciting! I mean, you and Larry, honestly, even though you were rocking out for day, three days at a time you actually could look at it and say, wow, there's incentive for me to continue learning this music. I might be able to make a career out of it, right? Like you said today, yeah. cats have to have an iron will because there's no guarantee on the other end after you go through school, which might cost 30, 40 grand a year, that there's any opportunity mm-hmm. for a livelihood out of that. That's the That to me is the most depressing part. The fact that there is not a touring circuit or opportunities to say, and that just that's you know that's what I wanted you to talk. Yeah, and it's been yeah. further further devastated by COVID, you know. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean we've lost like two major jazz clubs: uh, the Jazz Standard in New York and the Blue Whale in Los Angeles. Um, and and the, the Blue Whale was really an outlet for kids and, and everybody to to play any type of. It's a huge, you know, kind of incalculable blow to the jazz scene in los angeles um, yeah it was actually one so, of those places where like you or benny maupin would show up and play with the younger it was a it was a lineage it was like yeah, a play, well, way, yeah, yeah. I, I could play i could play with you know the monk institute or well the hancock institute now you know that you know those students and a lot of those people turned into people i toured with you know christian human alex mm-hmm, bonham mm-hmm. and uh, um uh, Joshua Johnson, uh, 
you know, Daniel Rotem. Uh, I would play gigs with him. Uh, yeah, Ido Mashulam, a trombone player. I used him on my album. You know, it's like it's a great source to to hear who's the new person who's who's making waves. And and um, now it's you know, COVID just came along and just devastated that along with a bunch of other stuff you know so um yeah it's 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 hard but you know the 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 love of the music seems to transcend that these young people hear something in a um an album you know and say uh i don't care what the odds are i want to do this for my life you know so you have to respect that. I mean, you know. How, how much? Uh, I, mean, I was going to ask you this question. I wanted to ask you this question. Is is just it doesn't matter genre per se, but um, you know, you go back uh, the intertwining of the culture and what was happening with civil rights and social consciousness was intertwined with music. I mean, Paul going back to Paul and Mike Clark, those guys were playing. Uh, in Oakland for Angela Davis uh, when the Black Panthers were around. There was, and, and, and you know, Wes Montgomery would stop any musician on the street and shake his hand if he had an instrument, if they had an instrument in their hand. I mean, the, the, the mm-hmm. studios were beyond, uh, I mean, the musicians could get ahead and actually make a living. And I just question, I, 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 you, you may, you were very eloquent before about, you know the 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 capacity, how we take in, how we learn about music, how we take in music today. It's all very different. But I just wanted to ask you about how the significance of music has changed in our culture. Because when I hear Grover Washington play in the early '70s, when I see Joe Henderson and Bobby Hunter, these guys were playing as if their life depended on it. There was an urgency to it. And it seemed that it the that music really was a significant part of our culture, and I don't feel that way anymore, even before COVID. And I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, you know, because to me it's about well, yeah. I think I think rather than looking at the music, you have to look at the culture, right? Um, and and uh, see if the culture is something that is trying to benefit from music, is trying to receive the message of music, you know, um, and, 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 uh, I don't, I think that's where the issue is, you know, when you have a culture that's based off of like computers and, you know, you have people looking into their iPhones, you know, uh, a whole family sitting at dinner, you know, and each one of them has an iPhone, they're not talking to each other, then how are they going to be receptive to like some spiritual thing in music? You know, exactly. they're, 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 they're probably con- content to listen to the music coming from their iPhone on those little speakers, you know, rather than being, you know, if you have a hi-fi stereo setup or headphones or whatever that makes the music sound great, that indicates that you want to be engulfed in it. You want to be inside the music, you know, because you want it to sound as good as it can, because you want the, to experience the music. But when you're satisfied just pressing some buttons and listening to it on your iPhone, you know, you know, on that speaker or on your laptop speaker, then you 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 may you, it, it may indicate that you just want it as background music. 
music, you know, and so you don't you want kind of a cursory relationship with the music, you know, and I think society is more transient. It's more like it may you make something to you buy something at Target, and then when when it breaks, you throw it away and then buy another one. You know, it's a very you know, we, uh, yeah, it's, you know, you're, you're, I know you, we, we, we plant a seed and we don't let it germinate or grow. We, we just plant another seed and then another seed. We don't mm-hmm. really allow anything to take root and the roots mm-hmm. of the music are so, uh, deep. I mean, you know, do you, and, and, and yeah. it even goes to like the civil rights thing, you know, there's like a lot of, you know, civil rights now and civil rights discussion, you know, is not a discussion between James Baldwin, a debate between James Baldwin and William F. Buckley. <laughs> right. It's it's like some soundbite that you're hearing Don Lemon say on CNN or Sean Hannity on the other side. I can't you know, believe, dude, it's so funny you bring court. that up. I was, we just, my, my older daughter and I watched both those shows last night. It's just so you're exactly right, man. Yeah. There's no substance, yeah. really. There's no substance. It's just, it's shock and awe, sensational sound bites. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, how can a society like that, right. you know, that can, uh, uh, you know, be even receptive to civil rights? I mean, how can a Nina Simone singing something, you know, about I wish I could be free, you know, at Montreux, which just t- makes the hair stand up on the back of your neck? How could... How could that even exist in a society that doesn't that 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 is so transient? So, or just or so, hy- hyped hyped up on quite honestly, um, not trying to inspire but to tear down. I mean, it just seems like there's always this like, ability to yeah. to uh, not. Up- My point is that there are Nina Simone's living. There's Diane Reeves. There's. Uh, uh, Cecile McLaurin Salvat, you know, there's all these great, you know, artists, but it's, you know, people will sit there and say, oh, yeah, that was really good, and then move on to the next, you know, The Bachelor or something. <laughs> you know? hey, Billy, we have a, a, it's just such a high honor to talk to Billy Childs here on the Jake Feinberg Show. We have a, a game on this program called Name That Voice. I don't necessarily expect you to know who this is, but pay attention oh, to the yeah. content. I'm terrible. No, it's okay. Just, 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 just enjoy the story, and we'll come back. Okay. I got connected uh, uh, in in Scientology. I went in for a specific reason, you know. Like, um, it wasn't like um, I think this is, you know, a lot of the misconceptions that people have about Scientology and and many other of these sort of new new things out there. I, uh, you know, when I got into Scientology, I was very close to having a to becoming a serious drug addict. Mm-hmm. I was a guy that I, I could always get a jump on things in myself when things were going a little to the left or something. I'm, I'm I was one of these guys ever since I was very young to be able to pull the plug on it before it went over the line and and I you know I was right about there and at that time they had a they had a program called Narconon they still do a great drug rehab program that people don't even are not even aware that 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 
has something to do with you know Scientology is one of these uh, it's a it's a it's a big 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 subject it does a lot of things I mean you could learn accounting by taking a Scientology course the best thing to know if you want to know about Scientology you have to go on the website so I I, I can't even really spend time you know what it is I want you to no, I want you to I, that's all because you know that's it man I want you to talk about your experience I don't care about yeah, what it says yeah. on the website so, so, yeah. so my, my 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 thing was this like. I, I was not at a good place, like, you know, I was not feeling good physically, too, and also too young to not be feeling good, and I recognized that. And so, you know, when I got in, in there, basically what happened for me was my, my drug thing got handled, never ever went back to it after that. And then number two, I, I, I started you know, getting into another portion of something that's a little different than Scientology, but it falls under that, which is uh, Dianetics. I read the Dianetics book, which which is just, it's just mindset. I, I, I just had to get, just get myself a little uh, straight, you know. I, I, you know, I had problems. I, you know, I grew up fairly, a fairly normal life for a kid but i you know i you know i had issues i had issues with 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 lots of things with with music uh racism uh uh poverty uh you know family stuff i just normal stuff that a young black kid or african-american kid would have if you know if he's really someone that's going to really inspect his life and how he's growing up, you know, and I, you know, I got into Scientology and that just took care of everything for me. And and uh, can you explain how? You though? Know, can you explain how specifically? Because I mean, it is. I am not trying to co-opt you into Scientology, Billy. Okay, I'm sorry. Do you know? Do you know who that is? <laughs> is that is that Stanley Clark? That was my second interview with Stanley Clark, and. You know, I, I played that for you not because he, I was, you know, we paint with a broad brush now. We judge a lot. We, we stereotype a lot. But I played that for you because uh, Stanley was introduced to Scientology by Chick Corea. And right. they had some ups and downs in their relationship because of it, because it's very hard to get out of, extract yourself from Scientology and you know, I vetted this with Lenny and Demiola, so it was a complex thing. But, you know, setting that aside, I just wanted you to reflect a little bit on Chick Corea because um, I think everybody was kind of shaken and, and, you know, shocked maybe by his loss. And, you know, he really came in this pocket of time. Remember Howard Johnson, the great tuba player, talked about this uh, pre-post-depression, pre-baby boomer generation of guys mccoy herbie chick very individual mindset kind of cats and i just wanted you to riff on 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 you know chick your relationship with him and also uh his legacy to to modern music well his legacy to modern music is like and i'm glad you didn't you know uh just limit it to jazz because you know his, no, his relationship yeah. to modern music is incalculable it's like you know it's it's kind of omnipresent you know he's his his influence over especially my generation you know but you know everybody really you know even people in his generation absolutely uh but uh 
Yeah, he was. It's, it's interesting that you would play that clip about uh, Stanley. I think I thought. I think maybe Stanley was trying to leave Scientology. He was, no, he wanted maybe. he got what he needed out of it and then he wanted to bounce and 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 it and it fractured their relationship. Uh, yeah. but then then they were they were able to sort of reconvene. I mean, anyway, all I know is that I did that interview 5 years ago and it's I just yeah. love hearing him talk about how it helped him because yeah. you hear about all the negative stuff and I understand yeah. I'm, you know I'm yeah. not trying to proselytize, but it's just an interesting thing, you know. No, I mean, I remember, well, Chick, Chick Corea was a very kind person. You know, he was a very, you know, his his uh, genius as a musician is unquestioned. Um, but he was also a very kind person who had humility, you right, know, right. and he was a very inviting person. He let me in, he let people in, you know, and he would share. He was a very generous person who would share himself you know and he he is also perceptive and sensitive he saw the weight that his words and his actions would have on someone like me who would take you know literally what he did as a gospel you know what he what he played and what and what he said you know i'd be hanging on every word and he was very aware of that mm, and mm. was always um was always mindful of, I think, you know, I perceived, he was always mindful of his actions and, and its effect on how people felt. I remember there's a Maya Angelou saying that people don't remember what anything you said or did, but they remember how you made them feel. I love that line, yeah. Know? And, and uh, he was very aware of that. Mm. You know? So that's, you know... That's the, actually more than his music. That's the, what I remember about Chip Korea the most. I remember one time also, because I think I had heard about Stanley wanting to leave Scientology and, and how difficult it was for him. And so I remember back in the late 80s, I was going to the Mount Fuji Jazz Festival with Diane Reeves. Mm -hmm. You know, we were going to play in. And what usually happened is that everybody from everybody from L.A. who was going to play on the Mount Fuji Jazz Festival would be on the same flight. Right. You know, so the right. flight would essentially be a party. That's great. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it was great. So yeah. I was like, you know, Herbie, Chick, uh, That's great, man. you know, everybody, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and all of the, every level, every tier of musicians amazing. from, amazing. from the, from the superstars to the lowly people like myself. Just the accompanists. Yeah, I dig, man. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and so, but I remember Chick and I were friends there and I went up to him and I just asked him point blank. You know, so what's the deal with Scientology? How come, you know, it seems like people are always wanting to, or, or, or when they leave, it, it seems like once you get in, it's hard to get out, you know? Sure. And, and why are people having all these negative things that they're saying about it? And, you know, to a very defensive person or an insecure person, that question might have seemed like a, a challenge or an affront uh, but with him, he, he, he spent the next two hours really patiently, like explaining 
you know, the, the philosophies of it, you know, without proselytizing right. and without, without telling me, oh, you should do this. He's just saying, well, this is what it's, you know, it says you, you have this kind of problem and this is how we set up to resolve it, you know, and it's very, very educational. And I, I don't remember much of what he said, but I do remember how he said it. Absolutely. You know? no, did, he, and, did, and, did, and, did he explain, though? I'm curious if he touched on why it's hard to extricate yourself if you want to get out. I, I guess that would never even dawned on him. But No, I don't, I don't remember that because yeah. I don't think that was even what, you know, the, the conversation, his answer wasn't kind of directed towards that <laughs> right. from what I remember, but right. I don't know. I, 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 you know, it was it was more about explaining the philosophies of it. Sure. You know, I think I think what he what he started out doing was asking me what I had heard. Well, what have you heard? You know, and I, you know, kind of like feebly and inarticulately, <laughs> you know, yeah, sure, uh, of course, said, you know what I thought it was, and he was, uh, you know, he says, well, actually, it's this, that, the other, and. um you know, uh, and like that, and it turned into a very nice, you know, friendly discussion, you know, about it, and and uh, I always remember that, you know, um, you know, I, how how generous he was with his time. You know, um, you know, I wa- I wanted to read this to you um, because I think you were you were there. Um, this is from. Our buddy Larry Klein, he said, Charlie Parker was an omnivore when it came to music. And I, you just said the same thing about Chick. I mean, he was uh, his legacy to modern music, not just jazz. He said, uh, Larry said, he was hierarchical. He was not hierarchical about bebop. The people that came in his wake looked down on the other forms and looked at bebop as, quote unquote, the real shit. Freddie Hubbard would be playing a festival, and you could feel this attitude from bop purists in degrees of subtlety, quote-unquote, obviously you guys aren't playing the shit. Bebop, (laughs) you're just running your ass off and playing as much and everything you know in one solo. My theory is that it's a generational thing. The guys that actually came up with the language, whether it's Train, Miles, Bird, you generally find that they don't have that kind of snobbery towards other idioms, and towards other tributaries musically, they tend to be wide open souls. And I wanted to get your, mm-hmm. I, you know, I wanted you to just talk about if you felt that, you know, because you, I mean, the music you guys were playing with Freddie is, I mean, it's, I don't go much past 75 with, I mean, I, and it's probably to my detriment to a degree, but like I love pre drum machine, pre disco. I just love the burning music, any genre. Well, it, but, but I mean, the music you guys were playing in the late 70s was like in the freaking cosmos it was not sometimes it would not resemble jazz at all but did you can you can you sort of talk about that i always find it interesting that like the bop purists would always give the give a little grief to those people who were trying to stretch it out and whether you think that well of course you know and as human beings we are provincial creatures (laughs) you know we 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 go for what I know. So purism is not just limited to jazz. I think it's not fair to just talk about Bob purists. Yes, there are That's true. people who are 
be, be, be people who are very limited in their thinking about that. But I could say the same about singer songwriters mm-hmm. too. You know, um, they only write. They write the only melodic music, and jazz is just a bunch of like random fast notes. You know, totally. that's what the, totally. the song, songwriting purists think. I remember going to a, a concert or, or, or a, a gig, and I remember asking. The artist, uh, a simple question, man, I, I really dug that song that you played on that big guitar because he had a big guitar. And the fact that I said big guitar without knowing the actual name of the guitar, you know, caused one of his friends to like scoff and laugh at me and like, oh, dear, oh, dear, like, yeah, you know, and but but this person didn't know my musical experience that I had written for the L.A. Phil and had written, you know, and played with Freddie Hubbard. He was just laughing at someone because he thought that they, you know, were not knowledgeable. So the purism and the snobbery can go both ways. And, you know, not to mention European classical music, you know, absolutely. And, and all of that, it can go, it's, it's all over. It even, you know, exists from city to city, you know, people in <laughs> San Francisco hate LA and, and well, everybody hates LA. You know, <laughs> <like> people, <laughs> people in New York hate LA, people in Chicago hate LA, you know? So, I mean, it, 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 it goes, all, all over. Um, so I just want to clear that. Absolutely. I'm just, clear, I'm just curious. Clear yeah, that yeah, up. yeah, totally. No, I mean, um, I just wonder like, uh, what I, I really don't, I really don't, you know, I just look at people who are purists about in who, who, who are limited in their thinking about anything as, you know, okay, that's, that's, that's your cross to bear. That's, that's, that's what you, need to work out you know i see the value of this thing that you don't but that's and, and it's too bad that you don't see the value totally you know? totally that's, that's how that's how i that's how i look at it what yeah. about the idea of like the snobbery not the, the the cats that are kind of creating musical this is the question forget about the opinions how in your mind how responsible are rhythm sections to creating new music vocabulary on the bandstand? Um, how responsible are Yes, because I've asked Ron Carter this question. I've asked a lot. I'm talking about bass, drums, piano. Like, to me, you go back to the plug nickel sessions. Larry, Larry was very articulate about this where, you know, basically there's several stories, but the one that Larry put on was that the that Herbie – Wayne, Tony, Ron, they were bored to death of the, they were kind of going through a formula trip with Miles and, and they said, listen, tonight we're going to, we're going to take the song out. We're going to leave the head of the tune. We're going to go out. And when they got to the plug nickel, Miles said, we're recording tonight. And they looked at each other. We're like, oh shoot. You're like, we're going to still do it anyway. They took a blood oath. And that night they did that what they started to break up time and form where they'd play my funny valentine then they'd leave the head of the tune almost leave the tune itself but then come back in at the same time and miles dug it a lot and you know i mean regardless that was uh the brainchild of probably herbie ron and tony and wayne and 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 i just think that rhythm sections in today's you know very sort of conformist musical world you know this is what the bass is supposed to do this is what the drum is supposed to hold it down 
uh, bass is supposed to lock it in. And to me, it's about kind of allowing the rhythm section to play melodically, to play musically, because in my mind, that's where new music vocabulary can grow. And I, I wanted you to talk about, about that. Well, I just think that, you know, whatever you decide your role is in the, in the scheme of the thing, then, you know, um, do that, you know. And, you know, if the bass is the timekeeper in this instance, but, you know, the, the drums is, is the, uh, abandons the time in this instance, or the, the piano player is the orchestra, or whatever, you know, it's, it's kind of an agreement. I, I don't think it's something... I didn't realize that they had discussed it and kind of had a methodology to it, you know, uh, before doing it. Um, but because it seems like very spontaneous what they're doing, you know, and, and, um, I think it's something that you decide in the spur of the moment whose function is what based on intuition, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, the the rhythm section, of course, is like you know, very instrumental in you know, de- determining the direction of any music. I think Tony Williams also is like really important in the in in figuring in American music because I think he, I, I'm not sure, but I keep hearing I, I hear stories, you know, from like I heard from. You know, Wallace Roney, who knew Miles and who knew all those people, um, mm-hmm. Tony Williams' importance to, to like, um, getting ideas together. You know, like, those those albums like Feast to Kilimanjaro and In a Silent Way, and, and um, you know, he was playing, like, very aggressive drums, you know. Sure. And, and, and I think it had a lot to do with his influence, uh, his curiosity about rock, you know, and wanting to bring that kind of sensibility to the music, which, you know, had a bearing on fusion, you know? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I look at, I look at like, I look at, uh, you know, someone like, uh, even though it's, it's sort of a misnomer, but, you know, uh, Bebop with, uh, with Kluke and then, you know, the conversational, I'm talking about growth of vocabulary. We got, Uh you know, uh, you got uh, the, the conversational piano trios with, with Evans, LaFaro, and Motion, like you said, middle 60s, Tony's infatuation with the burgeoning rock music, how to incorporate that. It seems to me like every growth, again, we're talking about labels, I hate melodic improvisation, jazz, a lot of fusion, those, we haven't really had a new vocabulary in jazz in a long time. And I just feel like a lot of it's driven by human beings in the rhythm section, not machines, but human beings. Mm-hmm. That's just my opinion. You know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, but, I, you know, we haven't had a new voice. You know, I keep hearing that it was not a new voice in music, you know, and, and music. And, and I, I kind of agree, but I think, you know, culture and society is not calling for a new voice. It's not interested. It doesn't give a shit about a new voice. You're damn right. You know, um, uh, and, and, it, that, you know, sometimes, you know, they want to hear what makes them comfortable and what, what old voices are, you know, that's right. You know, or, or, or there's so much 
craziness outside of music that, you know, maybe people want to escape into something comfortable. It's interesting you in, said that. In, it's really interesting. In, yeah. In yeah. You know, yeah. I don't know. Anyway, no, it's, it's funny know, because like that... Go ahead. I got to cut out pretty Yeah, no, listen, listen. Um, you no, we, we we let's 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 do, let's do set 2 down the road, man. It was it was it was great to hang with you, bro. Oh yeah. 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 How long are these uh, is there set 2? There's like I mean, dude, I've done three uh, dude, I've done 2000 interviews. I did three interviews with Larry. We're only doing one so far. We got to do whoa. set 2. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you, I mean, yeah. um just uh, yeah. out of curiosity, uh, are these are you they're on a blog and you can get them? You no, so I mean, I mean, you know, it? like I mean, we we like this is an extraterrestrial radio station, so we've been streaming worldwide. And then tonight, uh-huh. I'll 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 put this up as a podcast on Spotify or any of the, and I'll send it, you know, oh, put, I'll, yeah, cool. so it'll be available to everybody. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, do your thing, and and then we'll we'll pick. We got a lot more to do, man. Set two. We'll we'll, we'll be keep cooking, man. Cool, man. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, if you, you sounded like you had one more question, so I'll, you know I'll, what? Uh, you know what it was? I, I, it, what I just found interesting. What you just said was that I felt like um, you go back to train and 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 that early '60s modal period. Um, mm-hmm. I even look at meditation in general. Like people talk about meditation reaching some state of bliss. I mean, I think to be honest with you, music is meant to be. To make you agitated, uh, to make you think, to make you walk out of a club thinking deeply, and like you said, there's so much insanity and chaos outside of that that people are looking. Th- Ramblin said it: music is made for pacification, and I think that that that's part of the corporatization of music. But I think maybe you're right. Maybe the 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 absolute insanity of our of our times calls for the fact that people just want to be pacified with music and not want to burn. I can honestly say burning music has kept me about as as cogent and about as sharp as it can be, and I wish more people got hip to it. But we'll keep it going, man. I mean, it's a, it's a great dialogue, man. It's, it's great to have you part of the family. Yeah, no, it was great. I enjoyed it really a lot. <laughs> right on, man. We'll yeah. do it again. I'll have it up tonight, okay, all right? Man. I'll have it up later on. All right, Chris. Yeah, be cool. All right, man. Take care. Peace. Bye-bye. Yeah. Three hours in the books here on the Jake Feinberg Show. Pretty heavy day. Still trying to work through everything, the impermanence of life, and uh, how blessed we are to be in this, in this form, to be able to communicate and hopefully inspire people to be themselves. That's it for the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll see you later. Captain, I-